us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves. This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Why, hello, superhumans. It's Boomer Anderson here, your host of this podcast. As always, I'm appreciative that you joined. I really love the fact that you guys listen to this podcast, and I hope to bring a tremendous amount of value to you. Now, with this podcast, we generally like to go all the way out to the edges, back to the mainstream, bring on experts to give you bite-sized pieces of actionable information for you to use in your everyday life. But before we begin today, I must admit this is a bit of a confession. Rather than really bringing on someone to talk about bite-sized pieces of actionable information, brought on an expert to talk about a completely new framework for thinking and interacting with the world. The topic today is sovereignty, and I encourage you to listen to the full podcast to get really all the details of what exactly that means. But my guest today is Jordan Greenhall. Jordan is the CEO of Neurohacker Collective, but he's also in his 17th year of building disruptive technology companies. Jordan graduated from Texas A&M as well as Harvard Law before beginning as one of the first employees at mp3.com. In 2000, Jordan really kick-started, or really led, the online digital video revolution as the founder and CEO of DivX. After navigating two financial crises as well as an IPO, Jordan left DivX to return his attention to the big picture. He spent a number of years some time at think tanks and institutes, most notably the Aspen Institute, as well as the Santa Fe Institute, where he served on the board of trustees for five years. Jordan joined Neurohacker Collective and the co-founders Daniel Schmachtenberger, as well as James Schmachtenberger, after being, or spending, I should say, a week on an early Neurohacker Collective stack. He was convinced about the power and potential of this new technology and joined Daniel and James to bring it out to the world. As I mentioned earlier, the topic today is sovereignty, and Jordan really takes us through both why sovereignty is needed to save the world from a potential apocalyptic event, but also the three key elements of sovereignty, how one could really begin to get into a state of sovereignty and exactly what that means and feels like. And then finally, we close out with just sort of me picking Jordan's brain about the key obstacles to sovereignty talk about how government may get in the way, and that really brings up items like blockchain. This conversation was both intellectually challenging as well as fun for me. You'll see at times that I'm both processing and trying to ask questions at the same time. In fact, I took so many notes that I'll try and condense them all into the show notes, which can be found at decodingsuperhuman.com backslash Jordan. That's J-O-R-D-A-N. Again, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Have a great one, superhumans. Our sponsor today is Neurohacker Collective. Not surprising considering the CEOs on the show. I enjoy their products so much that I use them five out of seven days. Whether it's Qualia or Qualia Mind, which is a new formula that you should all try, I do find them to be completely revolutionary in the supplement world. And I do think it really kind of upgrades me as a person to hopefully reach for this whole concept of sovereignty. Now, if you want to try either Qualia or Qualia Mind, go over to neurohacker.com right now, plug in the discount code BOOMER, and you'll get 10% off your first order or 15% off any subscription order. This is something I've been taking for the past 10 months, and I've noticed a significant upgrade in my overall well-being 
a reduction in anxiety, and just an ability to think clearer throughout the day. Does that sound like value to you? Well, I put a little skin in the game and I invested in their company's recent WeFunder round. So that's how much I believe in the product. I put some of my own money at stake. So again, go over, check it out, neurohacker.com, and put in the code BOOMER for 10% off your first order or 15% off your subscription. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So this is a conversation I've looked forward to for a very long time, actually, because I, I've had the chance to speak with a couple of people that you're close with, uh, being Dan Stickler and James Schmachtenberger, about this very topic. And the topic today we're going to get into is sovereignty. But before that, I have to ask you, because I saw this video and you, you said that you're excited that Donald Trump got elected. Do you mind if I ask why? All right. So let me let me preface because by invoking sovereignty, uh, we first have to make a little bit of room, which is in order to discuss sovereignty, to do it right and well, we actually have to already begin the process of entering into it, if that makes any sense. Okay. It's not the kind of thing that you can stand outside of and look at. You have to actually enter into it, uh, one piece of which is becoming uh, is understanding it. And the reason why I mentioned that is that this question of Donald Trump has a particular characteristic of shaking people out of their sovereignty. <laughs> um, and if, if by virtue of entering into a conversation about Donald Trump, you get shaken out of your sovereignty, then, well, for one thing, you won't be able to actually uh, participate in the conversation. Fair point. Great. So now we've got like three or four layers of recursion going on. <laughs> so think about that as a primary point, that if you want to be able to meaningfully actually consider anything, and in particular, meaningfully consider precisely those things that are the most challenging to you, which will often show up, although not exclusively, show up as controversial in the social milieu, then you must be first and foremost very clear on how your sovereignty relates to the world that you're interacting with. And so just keep that in mind up here as we go into this conversation so that you're noticing as I say things, how does that actually affect your ability to continue to be fully listening to and responding to the conversation? And to what degree do you check out? To what degree do you enter into a kind of a coarse-grained emotional response? Or to what degree do you begin to enter into a kind of a simplistic schemata of thinking, which you might call judgment or prejudging? The first thing that I, I do, and the reason why I can actually say that I was and, and am, uh, excited by the election of Donald Trump is contextualized. Right? So I'm not saying that from the point of view of being a political partisan on the ground in 2016. I'm contextualizing it at least two layers and probably three or four layers larger. Right? So if anybody has spent any time looking at or listening to the kinds of things that I engage in, I take as a primary object uh, civilization design. Right? So the evolution of civilization and then the degree to which we can actually engage in a conscious relationship with how civilization unfolds. All right, already at that point, I've already lost most people. Uh, but that's important, which is to recognize that we are, we're embedded in a civilization, right? We're embedded in a huge amount of stuff that we more or less just receive, that we have very little consciousness of it. It's actually been, say, developed, how it came to be, mm -hmm. how it relates to us, and how it forms our ability to perceive and act in the world. Right? So that's a a primary consideration 
particularly these days, but one that I urge people to take is to recognize that we're fish and there's water and that water is mostly of human creation. And therefore, it's kind of like we're playing a game. And we can recognize that as, as a consequence, we can notice how the game works, and then we can choose to begin considering different games we might want to play, all the way down to the basic level. There are certain things that are rock hard solid, like the laws of physics, that we're probably not going to be able to play around with. But a couple of level, levels higher than that, and it becomes pretty plastic. Okay, so watching and monitoring and observing the shape and flow of the evolution of our civilization, I then notice the event of the 2016 election as one being particularly interesting, meaning that it actually represents a, well, actually specifically what's called the phase transition. Mm -hmm. There's something going on there that is profound and important because it's happening at such a deep level, almost completely invisible to almost everyone who is watching it at the wrong level. And, and I think that if, you, if anybody is sort of, if you go back and, and rewind your mind to the point at which the election happens, so if you can, maybe in the moment where that, that sort of interesting moment where the news mass media had to begin the process of shifting their narrative from inevitable Clinton win to, well, off, oftentimes unfortunate Trump win, mm-hmm. something happened at an at at a individual and collective level, which I'm going to call entering into a liminal space. People were disoriented. Most people, not everyone, but most people. Even the people who are Trump supporters were disoriented. They were disoriented in a euphoric direction, but nonetheless, something happened that was confusing. The model, the framework, the collective intelligence was surprised. And it was surprised in such a deep way that it didn't know how to resolve its surprise. Now, we can run this actually, this point, this, this way of framing it is, is useful because we can actually run a line, which is to say that this, this experience uh, uh, happens at an individual level. As, as human beings, we on occasion run into circumstances like this. We, we find ourselves in situations where our ability to make sense of our environment uh, and feel confidently that we can actually make good choices in our environment gets blown up. And we're, we're just, we're confused. And oftentimes, very quickly, then have some emotional response to our confusion. Uh, usually, usually fear, although not always. But that sort of thing happens at a collective level as well. Right? So awesome. Many, many people at that particular moment entered into a state of individual liminality, a liminal space, and in a collective liminality. Right? They couldn't even look around to find other people to give them orientation on what was a good framework. I could look at, the, at that moment from two perspectives. From one perspective, Anything that does that, anything that generates that sense of individual and collective liminality is extremely powerful and important because it is in liminality where we have the necessity and the possibility of the most significant upgrades in our technologies of sovereignty, our capacities for sovereignty. It also is, by the way, the most places where we can have the most damage, where we can actually make the biggest mistakes. You know, everything has moved now from solid into fluid. And depending on how things play out, it might re-solidify into something that was actually not a very good way of doing it. Right? So it's, it's a moment of distinct importance. And in this case, it wasn't just a, call it a, a stochastic or a random or a uh, just kind of event, but actually it was, it was itself a part of something which requires and makes needful the possibility of an increase in sovereignty, meaning we're in the middle of a, of a phase shift, we're in the middle of a great transition. Uh, the world that developed through the 20th century, and frankly, the world that developed through most of civilization, and I can kind of do this in stacks, like 
this 80 years since World War II, but also the 500 years since the Enlightenment, and also the 2,000 years since the beginning of Western civilization, and also the 15,000 years since the beginning of agricultural civilization, like all of those are actually cleaving. And the transition is of that order of magnitude, if not possibly larger. Uh, so I'm witnessing at this moment a thing that is simultaneously generating at mass scale on a global basis an opening into liminality that is incredibly needful because it is happening as a consequence of a set of, of changes that are going on of such magnitude and across so many levels that our ability to respond to it is impossible in the prior framework. All the forms of making sense of our world, all the frameworks of how we make action, take actions in the world, the technologies of civilization and society are inadequate to the moment that we find ourselves in. And so hopefully, uh, there's a phrase from philosophy that I like, hopefully this event will awaken us from our dogmatic slumber. And in, in being awakened from our dogmatic slumber, we will find a way to enter into a new way of being in the world, relating to each other, and coming into response to the world that is actually adequate to the moment we find ourselves in. Okay, so Jordan, if I, if I understand this correctly, we're in this moment, and we haven't re-solidified yet, right? So we've gone from solid to, to liquid. I guess first question is, have we re-solidified? And then secondly, I think one of the other things that I've, I've heard you say before is that we're in this transition that could potentially kill us all. What events, what technologies do you think could lead to that, and how do we avoid it? Okay, well, can I, uh, you actually asked two questions, both of which are profound. I'll try to take them in order. If I, if I lose the thread, just remember the second question, and we can come back to it. Okay. All right, so the first question was interesting, and again, I, I find it delightful, though I understand that it's very painful, is that many people endeavored to solidify and to solidify too quickly. So I'll give you an example, a very concrete example. There was an effort after, like within the first month after the election to make sense of the event and, and to make sense of the event in the most banal way possible, meaning to change as little as possible the way that you previously made sense of the world and still try to make sense of the event. Uh, think of any number of things. Uh, Russian hacking, I think, is the most enduring one. And what's, what's interesting is that uh, each of these forming structures, you can think of them almost like crystals in magma. So they're solidifications, but they're initially almost like snowflakes. <laughs> Funny, I didn't realize <laughs> Snowflakes and what? Yeah. yeah, they're, they're actually like snowflakes at the, at the, in the physics sense, <laughs> the geometry sense, which is to say that they're, as they're growing, they're building resilience. But in the beginning, they're actually still very fragile. Mm -hmm. The tectonic shifts of the nature of what we're going into continues to break them. Right? So while there has been a decided effort to close one's eyes and not actually think about what's going on, to stay deeply embedded in an in a increasingly dysfunctional, delusional framework of sense-making, the reality of the circumstances have continued to just break that up. So I find that many people, even those people who most steadfastly endeavor to bury their heads in the sand, are just finding that they're being dragged, kicking and screaming into having to recognize that, okay, we're just going to have to figure out something's going on that is deeper than just the stories that I could make up. And I think that like the, the entire arc of the past two years has been a great example of that. Every time a, a, a prefab mechanism for endeavoring to heal the break has come up. Um, it has lasted only, I don't know, days, weeks, maybe months before it's been churned under 
it's a nice process where you know at, at some point uh, somebody just has to recognize that that's an unpleasant place to be and step back and say, okay, oh shit, I don't want to play in that washing machine anymore. What the hell's going on? And I think more and more and more people have made have made that recognition at a, at a basal level, at a physical level, really, and then have made the choice to step back and wonder what the hell's going on. And so, of course, what happens is, is that as fewer people participate in the mass delusion, the capacity of the mass delusion to just keep pulling people under weakens. So we're actually beginning to accelerate towards having our shit together, which is good news, in spite of the fact that it's very unpleasant, right? This is not going to be a pleasant thing. This is going to be this deeply, deeply distressful thing, as all moments of liminality are. Okay, did that feel like that was a good response to your first question? It, it did. Moving on to the second one where we have all of these people that are accelerating towards having their shit together, so to speak. And there's a lot of, there's potential transition into something greater, but there's a lot of things that could screw it up and could kill us all. What do you see as some of those potential obstacles, whether it be technology, politicians, people, uh, et cetera? So at this point, we've been doing this long enough that hopefully what I'm about to request has some sense to it or some, it feels solid. In order to respond well to the question that you asked, I'm going to have to actually construct something which is not simple. And so the request is to actually listen. And I don't mean that meanly. What I mean is actually it's not easy to listen to something which is not simple, but to be curious about what I'm trying to construct and maybe allow it to build up before thinking that it, it makes sense because it won't make sense for a while, I don't think. Okay, so because the, there's a bunch of different pieces that it all kind of fit together. So let's start at just technology. And I think it's not fully obvious, but pretty clear that somewhere in the middle of the 1950s, as a result of the invention of the atomic bomb, the human species entered into a historically novel moment. So prior to somewhere in the middle of the 1950s, try as we might, we couldn't really f*** it up that badly. World War II was bad, but it barely made a dent in the population of humans on the planet. Even really significant natural events like the Black Death, which were really, really bad, still barely made a dent on the population of humans on the planet. But we couldn't do anything. Suddenly, in the middle of the 1950s, we found ourselves in a circumstance that we could, that we had the possibility for the very first time in the history of the universe of actually pushing ourselves to extinction, or at least to an edge that was morally equivalent and functionally equivalent to extinction. Literally no species has ever had that circumstance. I mean, some, many species have entered into circumstances where their relationship with their niche was one where certain behaviors, like they could graze themselves to extinction or they could decertify to a point where their niche was no longer supporting themselves. That's true. We're talking about a situation where a single affirmative choice in the part of two specific individuals could have killed everyone. And that's novel, right? Now, what's important after that point is to recognize that why that happened was that we had reached a level of ability, a level of our own power in relationship to the world that itself was unprecedented. We had built a capacity to deliver energy, to deliver power into the world that was new. And we had done that because our own ability to invent ways to deliver power had continued to accelerate, which is to say science and technology. Um, so we'd gone from swords to arrows to guns to, bom well, bombs actually predated guns, but to bigger bombs, to bigger bombs, to suddenly bombs that were insane and penetrating the deepest recesses of the laws of physics to be able to get there. Well, okay, that hasn't stopped, right? The, the, the process of our ability to know the world and change the world because of, by virtue of our use of our will 
has continued and it in fact has continued to accelerate. So in, just to make it simple, in 1945, we entered into a new era where we had a capacity to destroy everything, but at a tiny, tiny fraction, right? In this case, the inverse of the problem, which in that case, only two people had the possibility of doing that meaningfully, um, the president of the United States and the premier of the Soviet Union. But because science and technology have continued to advance, we've kind of continued to fill the gaps. So now we have entered, we have the, the democratization of the technologies of extinction is maybe a way of thinking about it. And it doesn't seem like we've reached that, but just to just take nuclear proliferation as a, a simple example. I went from two to seven. Um, and we're now kind of entering into a moment where the people who are the biggest experts of nuclear proliferation have said, look, our ability to keep this thing contained is decelerating. The likelihood that at some point we're gonna enter into nuclear power in the hands of something which is at a level lower than a great state is pretty likely. And we're gonna find somebody somewhere who's maybe a, say a multinational corporation has developed nuclear power, maybe in the next 10, 15 years. And it doesn't have to be a corporate, it could be a terrorist organization, it could be a rogue state, it doesn't matter. The point is we've entered into a new phase and that new phase is not just a linear thing. It's, you know, it's just, it's one thing to get two to seven people to kind of in balance, but 30 people is a totally different game. Right? The game theory starts to unravel pretty quickly. But nuclear power is only one variable. You know, with things like CRISPR, the ability to engage in the construction of genetic and bioengineering is very rapidly and much less controllably going to be entering into the social environment. Single digit millions of people are going to have a level of power that in the 70s was only within the constraints of you know, two or three, maybe seven national governments. Cyber warfare is also of the same order in an odd way because we are actually binding the fabric of our lived world to a computational substrate cyber technology, cyber warfare capacity is beginning to enter into an existential capability. In, in 1995, if you shut down every computer in the world, who cares? It doesn't matter that much. Life continues. In 2025, it does not. Okay, we could do other ones. I can just keep, keep making them up. Let's try another one. Uh, drones, particularly swarms of autonomous, autonomous drones, are also beginning to enter into a a moment right at the edge of existential. It's not quite there, but it's at the edge. And the reason, let's, let's zoom in on that because I think it's a good way for people to grasp. We have to understand things in the context of how the dynamics reinforce themselves because it's escape velocity. It's when things get out of hand that we run into trouble. So I don't know if, if there's a really, really, really good video that was put out on swarms of killer drones. I, I think at the, the top of my head, can't name it right now, but maybe afterwards I can find it and send it to you. you can I can link it, to it in the show notes. But the, but the basic premise is it, it shows a world that is extremely feasible, like could exist tomorrow, where autonomous little drones, like just like the little quadcopter drones we have, have enough AI capability and enough signal awareness capability to engage in targeted assassination. By the way, this could actually happen right now, and I'm surprised. I'm sure it actually does exist. So I could create a drone. And I could have that drone have the ability to just attach to a cell cellular signal. And I could code it to be aware of the signal that your cell phone sends out to your cell tower to tell your cell tower that you're your cell phone. And I could put a small amount of explosive on it wired to a little, a little device and fly it. And you know, within, if you're within the 30-mile radius of where it's flying, it could find you, zoom in on you, and blow you up. It's not super sophisticated. You know, if, if you happen to be inside, it probably can't get through the window. But the point is that we're not far away from that. But the bigger point is that 
there's a, a co-evolutionary dynamic that if anybody figures that out, then lots of other people simultaneously are aware of the possibility and have an intrinsic game theoretic motivation to actually get better. That's the problem. Right? The problem is it's called rivalrous game dynamics. If you and I are in competition on an exponential field, right? so if you and I are in competition and you're ahead of me on that competition on an exponential curve, your advantage is so significant that I have to engage in all kinds of effort to catch up and get ahead of you. Otherwise, I'm at extreme risk. Well, I do, right? I, I do engage in, 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 in all kinds of efforts to catch up with you, which means that I'm going to do things like not be careful. Right? I'm going I'm to be willing to do things that if I had been extremely careful, I wouldn't have made the choice to do. Well, now, if I get ahead of you in that, in that race and I've pushed the curve now further out, I've invented some new thing that was not in the world, but by virtue of inventing it, you know, it's hard to invent things. It's easy to copy things. I've now moved the threshold of possibility forward a little bit, but now everybody who's in competition with me can copy that, and that's the new fundamental. That's the new baseline. So now in order to be able to be in competition, we're all seeking new innovations. This is almost like the dangerous version of, of Schumpeter's creative destruction. Creative destruction, capitalism in relationship with technology has the enormous benefit that the threshold of innovation is actually where we, all the interesting stuff happens. Once I've innovated something for a little limited period of time, I have a competitive advantage, uh, but everybody in the world now has is the ability to see that I've invented it. Copying is easier than inventing, so they can catch up with me. They're motivated to do so because if they don't, they've got competitive disadvantage, and so the, the entire economy now moves to this new threshold. So that's awesome from the point of view of certain kinds of things. From the point of view of weapons of mass destruction, it's really nasty. So that's the idea, right? It's the the combination of the intrinsic dynamics of innovation is hard to do, copying is easy to do, in a rivalrous game theory, we're always in competition on the field of innovation, and the field of innovation is exponential power. We've been doing that. If you actually run the history line back, the reason why nuclear weapons were developed was because we were concerned that the Nazis were ahead of us on nuclear weapons. So shit, we were willing to engage in the massive investment of the Manhattan Project to move the state of innovation forward, which we did enormously. And in about two years, the Soviet Union figured out how to copy it. All right, wow, that's, that's, that's the moral of the story. Run that same story against every other possible field of, of destruction and across the nuanced levels of, of creativity that human beings happen to have. And you find yourself as a circumstance where the democratization of weapons of mass extinction is where we're at, kind of now. Like right now and accelerating over the next two or three decades, we're just going to continue to run into circumstances where We've moved from a point where two people have to choose not to turn a key at the same time to a point where every single human being has to affirmatively know how not to make bad decisions, lest we in fact kill ourselves. So that's, that's the, the shape of the problem domain. This is brilliant. Thank you, Jordan. So we all need to develop ways to learn how to not kill ourselves, right? And I guess this is the appropriate transition into the concept of sovereignty. Yeah. And really just sort of because some of the audience may have heard you speak, but also others speak on this concept of sovereignty, but maybe some have not. Do you mind just going into first, what is sovereignty real quick and just sort of the three components of that sovereignty? At the basic level, sovereignty is your capacity to respond to the world. And when I say respond, I'm distinguishing that from react. And a good metaphor for this is the notion of balance. If you imagine... Um, let's just say a fighter, like a boxer. In the beginning, let's imagine that our boxer is poised, meaning that he's standing well-balanced, that his ability to, to shift what he's doing is actually very high. You know, and he can read and respond. And when he responds, the action that he takes 
keeps him in a position of being able to respond. So, right, it's my movement increases my ability to make better choices in the next moment. That's what response means. Every choice you make has the characteristic of increasing your ability to make good choices in the next moment. When you react, it has the opposite characteristic. It moves you out of balance. So you make a choice. That choice changes your relationship to the world such that your ability to make your next choice is actually lower. And so I'm a boxer. I make a really strong, like I, I swing hard. Well, I've made a significant commitment, meaning I've moved out of balance, um, li literally physically. You know, I'm out of balance. I'm, I'm over, over, my weight is over and it's on a certain spot. If it turns out that that choice didn't work out, I'm now actually quite significantly less capable of responding to what my opponent does for, quite, for a significant period of time. And so what I have to do at that point is get myself back into balance. And so if you notice, the way boxers move is they, they make small, imbalanced movements, really significantly reading and responding and staying in a state of high response. And then only when they're willing to make a gamble do they make a, 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 a movement that takes them out of balance and very quickly try to move back into balance. Right? That's a really good metaphor. Um, if you don't like combat, if that makes you feel uh, sad first, notice that, that that very fact is a response to the world. We can do it with surfing. Surfing does the same thing, right? You've got a flow and a movement of objective reality, which is complex and difficult, and over which you have very little control, no, no control, really, except your ability to actually shift and move your balance so that you're constantly in this really amazing relationship with reality where your choice is continuing to upgrade your capacity to make choices. And that, by the way, that, that, that is the distinction between a, a novice and an expert surfer. And if you watch the way an expert surfer moves, they have this amazing ability to almost fly across the wave, that every move they make actually increases the potential of the next move. And every once in a while, they'll explode into a flurry of something that then re decreases their potential, but then, of course, they immediately have to come back in. So then sovereignty is your ability to respond to the world. Yeah. It turns out that there are three basic components of what that means. And I should mention, by the way, that I don't mean control the world. I mean respond to, be in relationship with in a way that is fundamentally collaborative, right? to allow the generative, the creative aspect of being in relationship with reality to emerge. So the first aspect is perception. The second aspect is what I call sense-making and meaning-making. It's, it's, it's a handoff. It's, it's converting perception into sense, which is to say raw input into something you can actually make sense of, and orienting that sense around like notions of what the hell's going on, and then converting that sense into meaning, which is to say into meaningful ways that one can actually respond to what's happening, the handoff, the handoff into action. And then finally, there's actual action, the choosing how to act, and then the execution of that action in the world as elegantly and skillfully as, as you can. And then there's a feedback loop, right? Now, you have entered into, you've entered back into reality. Reality will do what it does with whatever the hell you did, and then you will uh, be able to perceive that, right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a constant flow. And by the way, I should mention, it's a complex flow, meaning there's actually stuff coming back the other direction, that your disposition on how it is that you, you are acting has consequences for your perception, right? If I'm in a fight, if, I, if I'm in a combat stand, I'm tuning myself to perceive. I will perceive threats more often. If I happen to have been startled and somebody comes up to me, I'm much more likely to perceive that as a potential threat than a potential opportunity than if I am in a state of complete calm. They go, both go both directions and it's extremely complex, but nonetheless, 
uh, that's a simple framework to kind of begin the process of, of grasping it. Do you mind if we do a little bit of deeper dive on some of these? Of course. Because I think just looking at all three of these, uh, we can spend hours on this, right? If somebody wanted to really get a grasp of the model of sovereignty and sort of start to think how they could apply this to themselves, starting with perception, I mean, obviously, you can do the observing of what you're observing, uh, but what, what are some of the ways that somebody could start to like just start with perception and really understand sovereignty the sovereignty model a little bit more i imagine you might have noticed that on occasion i've actually closed my eyes mm -hmm. and that's an example of that piece perception is actually uh, much bigger than i think we oftentimes give it credit for our bodies and our minds and the combination have a huge amount of ways of sensing the world i'm going to i'm going to use a very rough term but i'm going to call it feelings uh, but by feelings, I mean, for example, the feeling that guides you when you're trying to get a lens into focus, or the feeling that guides you when you're driving a motorcycle to stay in balance, the feeling that guides you when you are shooting a basketball such that you actually hit the basketball, right? There's a proprioception, you know, how you know when your body's in balance. There's uh, the underlying sense of all the ways that your physiological systems are responding to the possibility space of what's going on, right? So, hey, do I feel a certain like tension. Okay, what does that mean? The, the point being that you've got these evolved sensors, let's just call them sensors, and there's lots of them, like thousands and tens of thousands, and they enter into complex relationships with each other. So there's billions of potentials that are all dedicated to perceiving reality and converting that into sense. And it, it is no small feat to endeavor to be able to actually perceive all of them and allow them to enter into a very clear sensing. I mean, maybe a simple way of doing that, actually my dad, my dad was a fighter pilot, so he taught me that this is one of the things fighter pilots do, is you can do this with just vision. There's, there's a way of sort of allowing yourself to be in vision where your ability to perceive your visual field goes way up. Uh, hunters, like if you're hunting in the forest, this happens. You're not allowing yourself to think you know what's happening. You're allowing yourself to be very, very like nuanced and sensitive to subtlety in just your visual field. Right? And of course, you can then do that even more broadly. You can be sensitive to subtlety in you know, the normal perceptual field we would talk about, like just hearing and sight. That's how you do something like hunting. Like if you want to know, if you want to find prey out in the in the forest, you have to become very, very sensitive to that kind of thing. But then the interior, the interior signals are even more subtle, and particularly these days, because we live in such a noisy world and we do such a terrible job of training people to not pay attention to their interior landscape, that things that are normal human stuff, we've been very, very separated from. Honestly, I mean, this is actually odd, but it's honestly the case. For most people, uh, the biggest bang for the buck in terms of building sovereignty is actually at the perceptual level is actually engaging in practices where they relearn skillfulness in sensitively noticing the subtle signals that come from all the various modes of sensing that they actually come into possession. And then they relearn a way of being in relationship with those subtle signals that allows that signal to come through clearly. I'll give you an example of where that fails, the notion of triggering. If I perceive something, and some part of the way that I interpret that perception generates a aversion, emotional response. Don't allow this to continue to come towards you, which is a very basic, fundamental, and 
gross, and I mean gross in the sense of like coarse grained emotion response, the state that is generated by that emotional response has a characteristic of reducing our capacity to perceive sensitively. It actually literally at a neurological level changes the brain and moves blood flow from, say, for example, the neocortex into the amygdala, as an example. And what that does is it shifts the nature of our capacity to perceive, to perceive subtly, to perceive sensitively, and to perceive, call it broadly. And it's actually kind of a simple, you know, to use a simple metaphor, let's imagine that you were dealing with a radio antenna. And I've got the radio antenna tuned to 99.7, and I can hear the music. And if I move the, 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 the dial one single notch, 99.9, oddly enough, they're odd numbers, but whatever, the amount of signal I get drops tremendously. That's actually a really interesting characteristic of the nature of signal in general. It's just real. And so to be in resonance with yourself in this case, as an antenna, to be in resonance with the signal is vastly changing your capacity to actually perceive. It's not a small thing. It's a gigantic thing. And very small changes in what I would call your internal coherence can no enormously shift that signal processing capability. Right? So to recapitulate, you've got a reinvention or rediscovering of what are in fact natural ambient capacities to just even notice that these things are happening. And then you've got a developing skillfulness to allow those things that you've now noticed and discovered to become clear. What do they mean? Then you've got a developing capacity to allow these things to become coherent, to allow the relationship between and among all the distinct signals to enter into a single signal that is actually a really high quality representation of them all. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So I guess narrowing that point of view would be like, for instance, when you're seeing red, so to speak, I know that's a, a phrase that people use. Ah, it's okay. that trigger. So when you see, you get triggered, you get really annoyed and you only have this narrow focus. That would be an example of just driving you out of this coherent state. Is that correct? That is correct. I should mention, by the way, it's astounding how often that happens and under what circumstances. So for example, being confused and then getting annoyed is seeing red. Okay, so a misunderstanding of something could just narrow your focus, so to speak. Well, it's, it's actually not quite that. A misunderstanding of something which enters into a state of curiosity expands your focus. A misunderstanding of something enters into a state of annoyance or a state of well, either avoidance or conflict narrows your focus. So avoidance and conflict being the two narrowing components, right? Yeah. Going back to something you said earlier about perception and the way people perceive the world as being sort of one of these core tasks or core uh, ways that people can start to engage in sovereignty. I would have thought it would have been the sense versus meaning, uh, the, the second component of the sovereignty, you know, model, if you will, just because some people struggle to make sense of a particular concept or a particular event in a certain way. And therefore, would training that area get you into a state of sovereignty faster? Or am I completely misguided there? We should be in a place of actually, honestly, sort of slugging through it, because that's what this is about. The the short answer is sometimes, right? In, in point of fact, this is all going to be absolutely particular. Yeah, individual. There is no general answer. Um, when I start on perception, the reason I start on perception is that that is the beginning of, of all. And 
because of the specifics of what most people have experienced developmentally, most people have very narrow bands in perception. And, and in fact, it's also very difficult. It's not as obvious to build. Um, but what you're saying is also quite correct. I actually wrote a different essay called On Thinking and Simulated Thinking. Simulated thinking is also extremely common, and it's a comprehensive trap that removes you almost entirely from sovereignty. If you enter through that door, if you enter through the door of, okay, well, let's, let's work on sense-making and meaning-making, there is you know, a whole lot of work and path to be engaged in there. Um, in fact, so let's just take it at a higher level. This is a whole thing. It's a comprehensive, it, 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 the, all the pieces fit together. So no matter what door you enter into, you will quickly find that the only way to move forward is going to be found in some other portion of sovereignty. Uh, if it turns out that you have chosen to enter into the door of sense-making um, and you're working at the level of, say, bad cognitive models, you might very quickly find yourself in a circumstance that in order to do better, you have to move into a liminal space. And when you're in a liminal space, the way that your emotional systems are responding to what is now a very confusing environment shuts down your capacity to actually engage in any form of thinking. So now we're actually kind of moving into the more of the perception sense-making mode, like right at the border. How does your system make sense in, in liminality is a, is a, a significant open thing because you're, you're now separated from sense-making. Right? Your sense-making frameworks have been dropped. And so now you're right now in that fluid space between perception and sense-making. And that, by the way, is not at all uncommon. You know, somebody actually says, the way that I am trying to make sense of my environment isn't working. So they're willing to move into beginner's mind. Well, that's very uncomfortable. It often will expose a lot of stuff that was developmentally, how do I say this right? We arrive, we arrive at our sovereignty as a result of our development in the world. And effective everybody's development in the world is to a greater or lesser degree traumatic. Our particular form of sovereignty is a scaffolding built around um, that developmental landscape. Whatever sense-making framework you have right now, it is got a whole bunch of holes in it around traumas that were part of your growing up. And when you drop that sense-making framework, a lot of those traumas are now raw. Like they're no longer buffeted and protected by cognitive and um, emotional strategies that you can use to avoid feeling bad things. Uh, and so what's going to often happen is you're going to run into those bad things and you're going to feel them. And so now, boop, you just drop yourself right smack back down to the beginning, which is to learn how to actually feel bad things at a basal level without dropping out of sovereignty altogether. This is kind of the iteration. And so then you'll, maybe you'll get good at it. Maybe you'll learn how to resolve a trauma or just learn how to, how to build more skillfulness in not avoiding trauma when it shows itself. You don't get triggered by events. You may not have learn how to become responsive to them, but at least you've learned how to not become reactive to them. And then from that basis, you may begin to be, begin building up new scaffoldings of sense-making, for example. I'm going I'm to use the term artfulness. Right? So in agency, artfulness is uh, what we're seeking. And the reason why I'm using that term is because I think it's, many people can, can connect that with sensitive and subtle perception. Right? To, to, to have an artful response to, let's say, just basketball, right? Um, you know, the difference between a novice and or mediocre basketball player and a professional basketball player is an exquisite elegance in the flowing of their perception, particularly things like proprioception, into action. Right? Elegance in motion is first and foremost tied to a very fluid connection between subtle senses and all the way through to action. And so that's a really nice, you know, if, you, if you just want to watch, I don't know if you've ever seen like the way that a, a dancer, like a ballet dancer might practice just moving their hand 
that's an interesting thing, right? Because on the one hand, it's a feedback loop between perception, all the different components. You're not jerking it. You're not, you know, you know there's, there's a perception aspect and an agency aspect. And so in order to actually build artfulness, to go from skillfulness to artfulness, means first and foremost to go all the way back down into perception and build sensitivity and, and, and sensitivity at such an unconscious level that you can actually just flow it through. It, it flows smoothly. You don't have to be conscious of it. You can actually now have it just be a, a foundational element. Um, like think about like the way that a, a, you learn to walk. Compare a toddler to say a six-year-old to a dancer. Let's just move up that developmental stack. In each case, there's a process of an inadequate level of sovereignty, right? So at the edge, the threshold, engaging awkwardly with a very complex thing, building a sensitivity at the perceptual level, flowing it all the way through to the point where at the action level it has become artfulness, meaning that it is now smoothly and easily done, and yet very effectively. Now think what happens right? when you're a toddler, or let's make it more something we're all a little bit more familiar with. When you're just learning how to ride a bike or just learning how to drive a car, that is all you can do. Your sovereignty as a, as a capacity is maxed out by the complexity of the thing you're trying to do. As you become more skillful in doing it, as you become like this, this the notion of like, and I'm driving a car, feeling the road beneath you and feeling how the tires are glued to the road and feeling and knowing from a sense-making and meaning-making perspective how subtle adjustments and where your, your hands are on the steering wheel will shift that into, a, into equilibrium. You've now become artful. You're good at driving a car. And that loop now has become smooth. You can run very, very significant, hard, complex human actions through something which can handle them easily, almost effortlessly. And therefore, you can do other stuff. Right? You've freed up a huge amount of capacity within that zone. And then, okay, now notice what happened. That's your ordinary sovereignty in response to your environment. Oh, shit, it's snowed and there's ice in the road and things have become unglued. Bam, you've now dropped out of sovereignty. Some kind of alert has happened. Your capacity to handle that artfully I'm assuming that you're not from Sweden, so you're not actually expert at that problem. Um, you're, you're from Southern California, so you're deeply out of, that's not your, your, your scheme. You've now dropped out of that. Your sovereignty has, sh has shrunk enormously in response to the, com the complexity of the environment you're dealing with, and so now it is all you can handle. And hopefully you've not entered into panic. You haven't actually entered into reaction. At least you've stayed in a responsive environment, and you you're trying to recall, okay, how do I respond to this? And all of your resources are dedicated to handling that moment. So that's actually kind of a nice, like a series of things. You've got developmental, you know, as, a, as a toddler or a person who's learning how to drive, entering into a relationship where your holistic sovereignty in this particular domain is inadequate to the problem, so it takes all that you can handle, and then learning more and more sensitivity and nuance and skillfulness to artfulness, and at that point now have a capacity where it becomes smooth and therefore becomes effortless, and that just becomes a component of your larger scheme of sovereignty. It now becomes a piece of your capacity to respond to your environment. And all that complexity now actually becomes available to you to respond to. I, I mean, now, now I'm, I obviously have thrown an unbelievably significant amount of stuff at people who are listening to this, but let's try to plug this back into the previous question. Driving a car is a serious deal. Like if you actually just look at it from the outside, the notion that we have, you know, what my friend Jim Rutt refers to humans as chimpanzees with clothes. <laughs> we've, got, we've got billions of chimpanzees with clothes hurtling about willy-nilly with 4,000 pounds of steel at, well, in California, 70 to 80 miles an hour. And yet, very rarely does this actually lead to any meaningful harm. It's actually rather astounding. You know, if you were to take a 16th century uh, adventurer 
and drop them smack dab in the middle of driving around on uh, uh, any normal highway, they would be out of their mind in fear for some significant period of time. But it probably affects you would just sort of drop out of fear altogether and just become uh, at peace <laughs> because it's just too crazy. And yet we've figured out how to pull it off. So that's actually quite hopeful that our ability to achieve individual and collective sovereignty over very complex things is real. We can pull it off. Um, we can do things in a way that we actually have achieved a level of artfulness in relationship to them that we can render them not unreasonably hazardous. Well, now we just have to get really, really, really good at it. And, and by the way, comprehensively. Right? So if you take now a look at this metaphor of cars, I'm not just dealing with the problem of hurtling balls of steel. I'm also dealing with catalytic reactors that convert uh, fossil fuels into other kinds of molecules. And in the 50s and 60s, they were producing lead. Well, shit, that was a bad choice. Our sovereignty, in this case, our sensitivity to understanding the complexity of um, chemistry and human biology was inadequate to the reality of our capacity to actually shift and change our reality. And we can create a substantial amount of harm. But we were able to figure it out and responded to it before killing everybody. And so, okay, we move forward. Um, and now, of course, we're continuing to engage in that kind of a, a process around things like carbon dioxide. And our collective sovereignty is not yet adequate to the sense-making portion of that task, meaning we don't actually really, as a, as a group of people, have enough sense of what's going on there to actually make effective choices. And our agency is also not adequate. We don't really understand how to do that job well. But it's not, it doesn't feel like it's so far beyond our capacity that it's hopeless. I feel like we've actually made great strides. And it's interesting to think about that particular problem. You know, Elon Musk, as a particular individual, took a look at it and said, you know, I think I've got a way to solve this problem. Um, I'm just going to cut through the Gordian knot. I'm just going to go ahead and move us all the way to electric cars. And I know how to pull that off without having a whole lot of coordination, which is actually kind of interesting how that happens. We can actually do a whole, the whole other story on the relationship between collective and individual capacity in the broader scheme of things, which is nice. Like that kind of thing can happen, and that's very helpful. It grabs whole chunks of problems and moves them in, in a different sense-making or collective sovereignty domain. But again, if we zoom back, the problematic of exponential innovation, exponential technology growth in the subdomain of rivalrous game theory and the fact that innovation is hard to do but easy to copy means that if our pace of collective, individual and collective sovereignty doesn't keep up with our pace of our capacity to generate impact on the world, then we're, well, we will, in fact, for sure kill ourselves. It's actually odd. It's guaranteed. There's, there's actually no way that can't be disastrous. And it's funny, like, I, I, don't, I don't want that to sound um, preemptive or visceral. It's literally just math. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, if, if tomorrow I have the ability to generate two levels of harm and I have the ability to, to uh, manage that at the level of two, and the next day I could do four levels of harm, but I can manage it at the level of, of three, and then the next day it's eight levels of harm, I can manage the level of four, right? So I've got an exponential growth of harm and a linear growth of, of management. And let's say the world can survive a level of, say, 10,000 harm. I can actually go for a while and not notice. You know, the world is like, okay, you're doing 500 harm, but who cares? 10,500 doesn't, you know, I can kind of cash it out. But at an exponential rate, when I'm somewhere in the range of, you know, 1,000 harm, I'm only a few seconds away from killing and uh, destroying everything. And that's the key, right? That's the insight, is that it's an acceleration issue. Right? It's not a velocity issue. It's an acceleration issue. When things are accelerating, your ability to respond to what the consequences of your actions are is much less than you think. Right? You're projecting forward and saying, okay, I'm going at 100 miles an hour, so that thing that's ahead of me is going to come at me at a certain rate. But you're wrong because 
you're actually going to be going 110 miles an hour and 120 miles an hour and 130 miles an hour. And so things are coming fast. Uh, this happens, by the way, for people who jump out of airplanes. There's a thing called, I think it's called ground rush, where our minds are perceiving our, our heading towards the earth and we're perceiving it as if it's happening at a constant velocity. And so we get extremely surprised by how quickly shit happens as you get close. Now you can train, you can become, you can become skillful in relationship to acceleration, but it's not obvious, it's not trivial. And our, and our human evolved systems are not designed to deal with that. You know, we didn't evolve in an environment where things were happening that rapidly. You know, for most of our evolutionary timeframe, things took thousands of years to change meaningfully. Um, it's only been recently where, say, in the Industrial Revolution or maybe the, the Second Agricultural Revolution, where things had changed rapidly enough that we were even conscious of the fact that those changes were meaningful. But now we're entering into a time frame where they're, in fact, changing so rapidly that decades are sea changes. All right, so then, then, then that, that's why I said this, it's, it's just mathematics that we need to actually come to the point where the technologies of sovereignty become the primary object of our innovation frontier. That first and foremost, before we increase any other capacity, we have already increased our capacity for individual and collective sovereignty so that we are always certain that our capacity to be responsive to our, our, our abilities is always equal to our abilities. Does that make sense? It does, but it evokes a lot of questions because if I look at, and maybe I'm seeing the wrong side of the story here, but if I look at the world right now and I see that we're developing all these technologies, AI, CRISPR, I guess nuclear energy to a certain extent, and sovereignty, I guess the, the focus on sovereignty as a development of one of those technologies seems to be behind those technologies. So I guess the question that I have is how do we catch up? And that part B of that question is really, we've talked a lot about individual sovereignty. How do we go to collective sovereignty? All right, so let's put a, a note right here because what's about to happen is gonna be really good. I wanna get to the good stuff first, but I wanna lay a little bit of groundwork. All right, so let's start with a, a very interesting problematic. And that is, unfortunately, the strategies associated with rivalrous game theory, co conflict, competition that is in the shape of conflict, it has, has for a long time understood that sense-making itself is the kind of thing that often you want to be able to break. But in the, after the Cold War started, you know, after we realized we couldn't just beat the other guy up with bigger bombs, we entered into a hyper-acceleration of what I call the war on sense-making. This is actually excruciatingly problematic. Because if we've identified building capacity in the technologies of sovereignty is the most needful thing, being in an environment where winning the war on sense-making is, in fact, one of the primary areas of rivalrous competition is particularly bad. Does that make sense why that's the case? No. Do you mind just unpacking that a little bit? So Sure. So it's very difficult. Let's just use this as an example. So what we're endeavoring to do, you and I, we are endeavoring to engage in the formation of a coherence between us. We are collaborating, which is to say that we are endeavoring to construct a collaborative sovereignty. And to jump to the end, the only way we figured this out is we build collaborative sovereignty. And no particular individual sovereignty is going to be anywhere near enough. If I thought you were lying to me, if I thought you were trying to manipulate me or take advantage of me, or even if I just entered into a situation where I couldn't trust you enough to tell you the full and honest truth, that is catastrophic for collaborative sovereignty. It's not a little bit bad. It's actually catastrophic. Right? You can't even begin to enter into collaboration 
when you're in a frame, when you're, when you're in a space of potential defection. Okay, well, that pretty much describes our entire global environment. I, I can't trust anything that is currently conveyed through any kind of signaling mechanism, right? if, it, if, it's, if it's not human to human. Right? In this conversation with you, I can enter into a space of potential collaboration, and I happen to have made a commitment to being willing to take the risk of doing so. So I will always enter into a volunteer of making myself fully vulnerable to you defecting to me. Uh, and then if, you know, if it turns out you do, I just sort of shut down and stop engaging with you and kind of cleave you from the graph. Like you're now hostile, no more engagement. It's actually literally called double tit for tat in game theory. But the technologies of broadcast don't work that way. So I can't trust any signal that comes from broadcast, full stop. Doesn't matter. I don't care if I think they're well-intentioned or not. The underlying incentive structures and organizational dynamics that control the broadcast signals guarantee that they are so deeply embedded in the war on sense-making that they cannot be trusted, which means that they cannot be used for collaboration, which means that any signal that comes from them or drives them is effectively a virus that breaks down our capacity to enter into individual and collaborative sovereignty. It's actually a big deal what I just said. Just declared a war said, on media, basically. Yeah, no question. It is a comprehensive existential conflict that must be won. And here's the thing. You know the phrase like, what is the phrase like, if, if you go to war with monsters, be wary lest you become a monster yourself? Something along those lines. This is a place where we have to have enough individual sovereignty that we can actually go enter into this war without becoming monsters ourselves. And we have to actually have enough capacity to recognize what it is to create a boundary without entering into struggle. I don't know if you've ever practiced Aikido, but Aikido is a good example of what that feels like. Not Aikido, but I've done Muay Thai. That's very different. Different, actually. Yeah, you can actually, if you, if you, if you sort of imagine, well, what I would suggest is just doing a little bit of Aikido and then comparing the two, and that actually gives you a whole lot of, of the sense. The, uh, oddly enough, the Jedi in the early Star Wars movies actually had a sense of this. And to, to be able to, to, to connect with what it is to be extremely capable of actually engaging in combat without actually at the level of your heart or soul being in a fight is the thing. Okay, so that's, that's a bit of far field, but it's interesting. But here's the thing. And this is actually circling back to an earlier question, or earlier point. Far, far too many people allow themselves to just enter back into infection when the liminal event opened. I don't care what mechanism you, you use to enter into sense-making. And I'll use an example. I don't care if you read the New York Times or watch Fox News. These are both straight-up viruses. Everything that comes out of them is reducing your sovereignty. The tone, the facial expressions, the body language, the frame, the expectations, the assumptions, the invitations to entering into relationship. Everything that comes out of these is a virus, is destructive of your sovereignty. Now, if you recognize that, you can enter into relationship with them in a fashion that is effective, meaning you can observe them. Right? You can know that you're not entering into collaboration with them. Right? You're watching something that is an evidence of hostility and learning how to respond to it skillfully. You can do that. And that's actually, by the way, very important. I have a you know, nuts set of sensors that I have out in the world that I observe and spend time on to be perceptive of what's happening in the world. But you know, I'm not letting it in to my psyche. I, I have a boundaries on what is true and what's not true. That's unfortunate because that's really hard. And of course, that means the field, almost everybody is exposed to a field that is pulling us out of sovereignty and putting us into conflict that even further pushes us out of sovereignty. And it's, and it's not simple. 
it's really sophisticated because remember it's the war on sense making that's been going on since at least the 1940s which means that our understanding of propaganda and our understanding of human psychology and our understanding of messaging and our understanding of mind control and i mean that in the strong and weak sense is amazing and we don't actually have any idea how sophisticated it is i'm actually in the process of writing a, a blog post call i'm currently calling it the ballad of james jesus angleton do you know who he was if you don't mind enlightening me he was, the, he was the first head of counterintelligence at the CIA. Hmm, think about that. Counterintel, the first head of counterintel at the CIA. He went completely insane, like schizophrenic all the way down, absolutely completely insane, because that's what happens when that's your relationship to your environment. Obviously, the KGB was trying to infiltrate the CIA. Well, how do you know? How do you know when the individuals you're interacting with are themselves hyper-sophisticated uh, agents who are actually privy to things that you're not privy to and are trying to disrupt your own understanding of reality. We're all James Jesus Angleton now. And if, you're, if, if you are in that field, you're in trouble. Okay, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the context, right? That's the context of this problem. So we've got a double whammy. <laughs> On the one hand, we're rapidly uh, approaching a level of challenge that, we've, you know, that is way beyond anything we've ever considered possible, much less dealt with. On the other hand, we have to innovate a level of sovereignty that is adequate to it, which is something that we've never even begun to contemplate, much less developed. And finally, on the omnipresent and always ironic third hand, we're doing so in the context of a war on our capacity to do that that is profound and accelerating. So that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's actually the situation. So why did I say there was good news? Well, it turns out there's actually really good news. It's interesting, actually. The problem is exponential is it turns out the essence of exponential is collaboration. Okay, that's not obvious. Unfortunately, it'd be nice if it was obvious. Let's see if I can find a way to make that a little bit more clear. Going back to the innovation on top of, or copying on top of innovation leading to further innovation, is that it? Yeah, uh, let me do it this way, actually. This is actually probably a better way of doing it. In, in World War II, the Manhattan Project and Bletchley Park, and I'm just gonna use those as metaphors. I know there's a lot of nuance here, but let's just assume that they're more or less the way that they're articulated. So the Turing story and the, and the Oppenheimer story. These were recognitions of the necessity of, of creating environments that were conducive to innovation so that the level of innovation was adequate to achieve the objective. Something happened there, which was an, a recognition on the part of conflict, of the necessity of innovation, and of the discovery that the environment that is necessary to achieve innovation is of a certain kind. The Manhattan Project was a collaboration. Wesley Park was actually a collaboration as well. I mean, Turing was the singular genius who made it happen. It was a collaboration. The space of collaboration is the fertile field from which springs all creativity and thus all innovation. It has always been that case. But because we're now entering into a situation where the raw level of creativity, the raw level of innovation is the thing, right? the, the, the thing that matters, it's becoming more and more clear. So if you look at, for example, just like the arc of the culture of technology companies, going back to, say, Ford, the Ford Corporation, and all the way up to, say, Google. So Ford, General Motors, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, Apple. Let's just skip to Google. And there's a whole bunch of other ones in there. Microsoft, Google, let's just do something like that. What you'll notice is that in order to achieve a higher level of innovative capacity, which is to say, in order to get more of that thing, which is in fact the competitive advantage, each one of these organizations had to innovate a higher level of collaboration. 
they had to redesign the underlying nature of what their core culture was in a direction of more capacity to collaborate. Because collaboration, the space of collaboration, is the fertile field from which creativity and thus innovation springs. And because in just straightforward technical innovation or technical capitalism, the ability to be more creative, the ability to be more innovative was the currency of competitive advantage that has shown us the arc. Well, what that means is if we can just find ways to continue to improve our ability to discern these spaces of collaboration, right? how we create environments where human beings are increasingly capable of coming into collaboration with each other, which then means to discern the spaces and the ways in which we can, we can become more coherent with each other, then, and only then, we can achieve higher levels of creativity and achieve higher levels of innovation. Well, we're almost there. You may notice if we kind of listen or rethink about this entire story, discernment and coherence and insight are the characteristics of sovereignty, which is to say that precisely to the degree to which that we become skillful in developing individual sovereignty and creating spaces where we can enter into relationships of increasing sovereignty, that is the most, that, that, that kind of thing, and I'm just going to call that right now a, a creative coherence, that kind of thing, this, this, this gathering together of individuals who are achieving high levels of personal sovereignty and learning how to enter into relationships of increasing collaborative sovereignty, creative coherence, is perfectly aligned with the essence of creativity and innovation. So if what you're doing is you're racing in a conflict of how to go about engaging in innovation, the place to be, you know, to be further along that curve is to be in a space of coherent creativity. And that is the point at which there's a shift from the rivalrous game theoretic dynamics to anti-rivalrous game theoretic dynamics. In a rivalrous game theoretic dynamic, you and I are some, at some point in competition struggling over some thing that one of us can have, the other one can't. And therefore, we enter into a psychology and a relationship that's associated with competition at some, at some minimum point. In anti-rivalrous game theoretic dynamics, we're in a situation where my ability to benefit increases every single time your ability to benefit increases, which means that the best possible choice I can make for myself is perfectly in aligned with the best possible choice you can make for yourself. And it produces, in this thing, this, this anti-rivalrous relationship, which is to say, again, I'm just saying this in many different ways, collaborative spaces, creative coherence, is the most capable of creativity and the most capable of innovation. So there's a perfect linkage. If we actually begin the process of coming into and putting sovereignty, individual and collective, at the forefront, that place, that, that place where we've actually achieved that becomes the locus of the highest level of potential innovation. And because it's the locus of high, highest level of potential innovation, it becomes a generative attractor because anti-rivalrous is, is uh, Metcalf's law par excellence, meaning the more people who participate, the more value that generates on an exponential level. And so this shifts, we've now shifted from the rivalrous on the game theoretic curve, which is ruinous, to the anti-rivalrous on the game theoretic curve, which is, well, it's perpetual. Like there's, there's nothing that that should continue to proceed until there's, unless there's something about reality itself that causes it to, to sort of elegantly slow down. All right, that was a gigantic payload, and there's some pretty uh, poorly wrought concepts that I threw down. So I imagine that I didn't actually deliver much, but 
hopefully it was at least a, uh, a gesture in the right direction. I think it was very helpful. Now, one question that came out of that is that you said things like the Manhattan Project in the past were a recognition on the part of conflict to, or the conflicting side that they needed to innovate, right? Yep. How do you see sovereignty expanding if the government in this, well, these are in conflict in the past has been government. How do you see sovereignty expanding if governments are not aligned or if governments aren't cooperating in general with this concept of individual sovereignty? We are going to have to reinvent governance, which almost certainly will imply routing around government. And I, it's funny, like I said that with a very much straight face. And it's because it's oddly enough in the scope of things, actually not that much of a big deal. We're already in the process of doing it. I mean, just think about like, just think about cryptocurrency. One minute before cryptocurrency happened, it was absolutely impossible for anybody to create a currency that wasn't a state actor. Like literally the nanosecond before the Satoshi white paper was published, it was categorically impossible. And, you know, we now sit in the era where it's obviously trivial. There's like, I don't know, tens of thousands of them right now. <laughs> so that's, it's happening. And as it turned out, it's actually in the space of creative genius. And it's just another way of putting it. And particularly collaborative creative genius, which is to say people being able to enter into collaboration with each other. The power of that is so enormous that these problems end up being prosaic. So government, as big as it is, and it's powerful, I mean, don't get me wrong, is actually minuscule in comparison to the potential of what happens if we become artful in these technologies of sovereignty, in these creative coherences. And there's actually something interesting going on right now in the world of blockchain, uh, broadly speaking. It's actually the whole point is that it's, it's, it's not that. So um, I've become very interested in, in a project called Holochain. In fact, I got to tell you right now that even though I don't know for sure, all of my intuitions are telling me that that's a super big deal, uh, so much so that I'm pointing a lot of attention at it. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm positioning it as interesting is that it's part of an arc. So if you look at, at the arc, it's basically been Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then question mark, meaning that everything else that's happened in blockchain has been a kind of a, an exposition of those two primary moves. And what's interesting about those two primary moves is they are both moves in the direction of more capacity to engage in collaboration. And Holochain is really quite vastly more of that sort. There's a phrase that, that I like, which is called culture eats strategy for lunch. What the Holochain people seem to have done really well is they got culture right. I don't know if you've spent any time in the crypto universe, but one of the biggest challenges, particularly in the Bitcoin subset of the crypto universe, has been, let's call it, I'm going to call it culture, meaning that all too often they've come into situations where conflict resolution looks an awful lot like 12-year-old kids on a playground. And that's not a particularly effective way to resolve conflict. It's definitely not a particularly effective way to engage in collaboration because it generates hurt feelings. It generates people who feel like the other people are not to be trusted, so it begins to fragment. And so the collective intelligence breaks up. It breaks up physically, meaning people are now sorted into different groups that are now in competition with, with each other and engaging in all kinds of weird, stupid shit. But also, even the individuals in subgroups are now left with a certain sense of like, wait a minute, maybe this is not a safe place to be and I need to be less trusting of the people around me. So you've got like a decreasing capacity. Holochain actually seems to have spent a lot of work on just building sovereignty as individuals and a group, first and foremost. They've actually been working on this thing for 10 years, well, well in advance of actually Bitcoin existing. They're actually working on a different project called the Metacurrency Project. And the group that worked on it actually has consciousness of questions like individual sovereignty and questions like how do we enter into spaces of collaboration? They've actually got really good at that. 
And on the basis of that, they've actually constructed something which when you double click on it and take a look at the code and the architecture and the design and the strategy is really, really good. Like a lot better than anything else that I've seen. So that's an example. It's an example of two things. It's an example of the fact that we are ambiently discovering that the niche of selective advantage in the contemporary environment happens to be in the place of increasing individual and collaborative sovereignty. If I'm right, Holochain is going to outcompete ETH, Ethereum, which by the way means that I'm moving a lot of my crypto investments into Holochain as fast as I can. <laughs> okay, so that, that the niche of com selective competitive advantage is in the space of individual and collaborative sovereignty and that the generativity of that fact is enormous. It's, it's, it, the, what ends up happening as a consequence of getting there is really significant. Like Holochain may be a potential, not right now an actual, but a potential of say a thousand times more creative, more capacity to deliver real innovation into the world than Ethereum has been. Um, and I'd say right now we can say that Ethereum is about a hundred times more creative than Bitcoin, if you look at all the kind of things that were developed in that space. So that's like, that's interesting. I would say right now I'm, I'm making a bold claim, but I could be very well wrong. Um, and I haven't done enough work to be able to feel super confident, but my spidey sense is, is, is telling me that. And it's a really good example of the nature of what we're talking about. Jordan, I want, I want to transition a little bit because one of the, the, um, well, the project that you're involved in and how I came to know you, Neurohacker Collective, in terms of attacking this whole question of sovereignty and how to develop sovereignty both on the individual and on a collective level. How do you guys do that in terms of the products do you, that you produce? Do you mind just going in a little bit on, well, you have Qualia and Qualia Mind out right now. Yep. Uh, how those help individuals develop sovereignty. Okay, so first, and this is actually, I think, important, this is mostly a question for Daniel. Uh, Neurohackers is vastly more centered on his area of expertise than mine. I am a collaborator. He is the core collaborator. He's the Turing in this story, and I'm the guy who kind of brings during his lunch. That's a pretty fair comparison. So let's, let's, let me look at it from the point of view first, why? Why this particular thing and approach and then how? And I, and I, can, I, can, uh, I can simulate the how pretty well. So for purposes of like pretend, look, looking like I know what I'm talking about, I'll do an okay job, but it's core to recognize that I'm mostly simulating it. Why? Well, we've already identified why. The technologies of sovereignty are the thing, the thing that actually is, is the most needful in the moment. Why this particular thing? Well, now we've got two things going on. One is the problem of, of what, what I call in medias rest. We're in the world. We're in a world that is happening in, in, in ways. And we are in that world, meaning we have certain capabilities of being present in the world. I can't snap my fingers and make things happen. I have to actually do stuff in a uh, relationship to what my per personal capabilities are. So in looking at the space of possibility of what could be done by us for real right now, and then attempting to consider that in the context of what actually must be done in what order <laughs> we ended up recognizing this particular moment this particular event was a good use of time a good place to attend so it shows up like this on the one hand the physical body is the primary instrument of sovereignty uh, let's put it very simply with very limited exceptions if you're hungry like really hungry you can't you can't be sovereign you know, your your body hunger signals are going to override your habits and you're out if you're physically ill, you can't be sovereign, right? And this actually, by the way, shows up not just in the sense that if you're physically ill, you can't do stuff, but also it affects your psychology, your cognition, you know, as we all know. If you're depressed, if you're not getting enough sleep, like if your body's up, everything else is really, really hard. And by contrast, 
if your body, and in particular, now I'm thinking of your, remember your brain is a part of your body, so that's important. If your body is dialed in, then everything else gets a whole lot easier. In fact, a whole bunch of stuff that used to be problematic drops out. That's actually really interesting. We can actually solve, say, issues of um, anxiety, not behaviorally, but biochemically. And I don't mean Xanax. I mean actually solve the issue. And we're going to get to how in a second. And that distinction between Xanax and for real is, is important. Okay, so it's a super high lever. Here's another piece. We can either swim against or with capitalism. It's, it's there. It's got all kinds of problematics. It's got all kinds of awesome advantages. One of the awesome advantages is that the ability to deliver products into the hands of billions of people exists. Now, of course, if that product happens to be a can of Coke, that's really bad. But there are ways, if you can develop a product which is broadly and well-designed to increase sovereignty, then you're now increasing sovereignty en masse, using, swimming with, using the advantages of the amazing, enormous, incredible machine that capitalism has constructed. And right now, we are able to deliver qualia to people in New Zealand and Abu Dhabi and, and all over the world except for China right now. And I should say that, that uh, we are quite decidedly not Apple. We are not a sophisticated, well-oiled corporate machine um, because we are eating our own dog food, which means we're experimenting in how to engage in collaborative sovereignty first and foremost. It would have been short-sightedly easier to do this like a venture-funded company, um, but we've been very careful to maintain the centering on collaborative coherence, which means that we're not as effective in the short term, but hopefully on the basis of actually being able to go exponential. And there's, there's evidence that's beginning to happen, which is nice. Now, here's good. Let me go to one more level. Right, so the body is a lever in sovereignty. Well, the next one happens to be that we have entered into an, a, a, a space, which is uh, we've entered into a place of opportunity. And, and Daniel and, and, a, and a handful of other people in particular, where we have enough understanding of the, the psychological, cognitive, neurological, biochemical stack that we can actually engage in effective action, elegant, artful action in that space. You know, that wasn't true 10 years ago. It is true now. It's actually quite decidedly true. It's astounding. And by the way, we can do this not just in this psychoeffective area. We can do it in all kinds of places. Um, and we're, like I, I think I mentioned uh, before you started recording, that we've got like a hundred different products that have been identified and about seven that are, are, are well characterized. And only a handful are in the psychoeffective space, uh, like say sleep. Others are in places like cellular regeneration, uh, longevity, um, immune response. Anti-aging. Anti-aging anti broadly. Like I actually am bifurcating anti-aging and feeling youthful. There's one that makes you actually live longer, and there's another one that makes your current being in the world younger, more youthful. And that's because of the fact that, the, the, the fact that we are on the threshold of a new way of engaging in how we go about doing scientific discovery and how we go about generating scientific hypotheses that is broadly synthetic rather than broadly analytic. And this is, I mean, that's a gigantic digression that is probably not worth doing. But the point is that that opportunity exists, right? So we have a really interesting fine point that we're in a situation where we have the possibility by virtue of executing on a strategy of deploying new capacities, a new potential, specifically for upgrading psychological and cognitive capacities and then using that as a leverage point to go into the broader pieces of the, the biological body piece of the stack and potentially en masse, right? So if I was in the business of trying to figure out how to actually go about constructing sovereignty, that's one of the things that I would do first because now what happens is 
every single human being who enters into right relationship with qualia is meaningfully increasing their personal sovereignty at the lowest level of the stack and at the highest level of the stack, meaning that their body is becoming more available to be responsive. And they're actually increasing the capacity of their conscious awareness to make use of that simultaneously. And therefore, becoming capable of becoming part of the conversation. So going back to the beginning, for example, if you find yourself really struggling with how to live in a post-Trump world, qualia is actually a pretty good answer because it'll actually help your body deal with stress and the negative consequences of living in an environment that is hostile and confusing. Not perfectly, but it'll help. Actually, it can help quite a bit, actually, depending on what dysfunctions you have. It's, it's really good at addressing dysfunctions and will increase your your psychological and cognitive capacity to begin the process of actually interacting with the liminal question. So that's it. Like it's like a little, it's a little tiny instrument that is a bit autocatalytic and hopefully, hopefully a lot autocatalytic, which is to say that the people who begin to enter into this relationship, what we're calling the field of empowered responsibility, meaning they enter into a conscious relationship that is like a, like a, uh, a mirror of the, uh, what do you call it? The looking glass, Alice, Alice's looking glass. You could be on one side of the looking glass where you are reactive, you are not conscious of your capacity to enter into personal responsibility for your responding to the world. And then there's the other side of the looking glass where you are entering into the field of empowered responsibility. It does not mean that you are in fact actually sovereign, but it means that you have chosen to begin taking that path. And that choice is the first choice. Like if you haven't made the choice, it's very difficult to go any further. But once you've made the choice, then two good things happen. One is you become more available to yourself. And two is you become more capable of entering into collaboration. I can collaborate with you and or anybody else who's chosen to enter into that space because I can say something that maybe doesn't sound right, but instead of going from uh, confusion into avoidance, you maybe now have learned that the, uh, going from confusion to curiosity is a more powerful response. And like, that's kind of it. Right? Once we can do that, now we're beginning to collaboratively build, and it has to be collaborative. Right? Unfortunately, this is not an Elon Musk moment. Well, not unfortunately. It simply is not an Elon Musk moment. It, it just is. It's not unfortunate at all. It's, if it works, it's wonderful. But we can begin the process of figuring out how we go about collaboratively constructing these spaces of creative coherence. And that's it. Like that's, that ends up being the whole game. So this is not a trivial effort. Right? We, we are not in this for the purposes of making dough by selling brain pills, uh, as some of the people who we work with have pointed out is like, okay, be careful. That's not the thing. This is actually all part of a reasonably well-considered seamless web, fully connected with the most challenging problems, well, A, of the moment, and B, as far as I can tell, have ever been faced. And I can personally attest to just Qualia's effectiveness. I've taken it for about 10 months now and just... Like you said, being able to engage in that conversation and really reduce those anxieties so that you can be more open-minded uh, and admit when you don't understand something and see curiosity has been, frankly, life-changing for me. So thank you very much for that one. Uh, I guess a couple more questions, because I know we're running late on time, Jordan, is um, just looking at your background. And you start at Texas A&M, Harvard Law, DivX, and you've developed this thought process around complex systems, complex science, or complex system science, so to speak. How did you get started? Like what, what books came to mind? What books came to you? Were it, was it interactions with people like Daniel? Uh, what 
what really got you started down this path? Okay, so we're going to have to start to begin at the very beginning, which is um, on the one hand, I was lucky enough to be born into an environment that was pretty darn conducive to the kind of being I happen to be. And the kind of being I happen to be doesn't work in the world in which we happen to live. Um, for whatever reason, none of the ordinary mechanisms of achieving a sense of fitting in or achieving a sense of success worked at a basic level. So fill in the blank. You know, in school, the notion that you know, the teacher approves of you or that you got an A actually made me angry, not satisfied. In business, being offered a lucrative job or some sort of upwardly mobile position made me feel depressed, not successful. In relationship with other people, like interacting with them as a child and as an adolescent, an inability to actually feel met or heard and an inability to actually perceive why it was that other people thought that certain things were attractive or interesting. All right. So this was an interesting dynamic. On the one hand, the things that would uh, Brett Weinstein actually very specifically calls this the hill climbing. Right? So there was a path of climbing a hill that existed that if you could climb the hill was a really good choice. Um, but it didn't work. It just wasn't, wasn't my thing. I wasn't that kind of a creature. And yet, on the other hand, I was just lucky enough to be in an environment where the kind of being that I am was supported enough that I didn't get broken on the rocks. Most of the people, and I've encountered many, of, that, of this sort, of the latter sort, did not have that luck. And so they ended up more or less broken on the rocks, which is super sad. And one of the other things that, we got very, that got us very motivated around quality was actually endeavoring to heal as many of those people as we possibly can, both out of a, a sense of compassion and love and also out of a sense of just practicality, which is we actually need those kinds of people. Think, again, back to Turing as an example. Broken on the rocks, right? Actually died uh, as a consequence of not being adapted to the world in which he found himself. Okay, so in that context, in that characteristic, one of the interesting things that I noticed, and this is actually literally me retroactively looking back on my own development and saying, what the hell is going on there, is that certain things in my experience showed up with a kind of luminous intensity and mysteriously, meaning they weren't ordinary. Other people didn't say, hey, this is cool. I would like come across something and I would just be like, hmm, that's attractive, like, like a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old. And... I would get reasonably obsessed about them. And since I spent a substantial amount of my time solo, would effectively indulge in them. And so this would be, for example, computers. I was very deeply involved in computers about as early as you could have been deeply involved in computers, historically, like born in 1971 and you know, playing with computers more or less as soon as personal computers became available at all. And then a lot. Like it, I actually, my wife asked me a question, like if you had been born now, what would you do? And the short answer is, well, that kid would have never gotten off the internet, which is not healthy, but that's probably what would have happened. The only reason I got off the internet back when I had a modem was because my parents needed to use the phone, if you recall how those were. Um, and all the other stuff that, interestingly enough, we can actually broadly call nerd, nerd culture, for example, things like science fiction and comic books and role-playing games and um, science itself, mathematics. These were all, and here's the thing, I had this really interesting recognition that each one of these is kind of like a bat signal or a lighthouse, a beacon, by a kind of mind or a kind of spirit that was endeavoring to signal out the space of creative coherence, in spite of being in a world that was hostile to that. It was endeavoring to, to speak in collaboration with anyone who was willing to actually listen. 
And some of these cases, they're actually cryptographic. A lot of the cases actually, meaning many, many geniuses in the past figured out how to say something that was attractive in the prosaic language of the world in which they lived, but actually carried a more fundamental payload for those who were able to hear it. In fact, I'd say that was, somebody figured that out a long time ago and it's, it's quite common. And for whatever reason, I found that I was attracted to those kinds of things and repulsed by things that felt bad, like you know, watching TV shows or movies or reading books that had a certain, I don't know what you'd say, exploitative nature to them. That they would they used your own humanness to take advantage of you. Good marketing is a basically, and so that just ends up becoming uh, it builds on itself. You know, if if you when you're like ten for whatever reason find yourself reading Nietzsche and trying to actually do the thing that Nietzsche says, which is not become a follower. It's, his 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 whole the whole point of Nietzsche is is to actually listen. And then stop following. That's a good. Okay, what does that mean when you're 10 years old? And then you know, turn the corner and say, reading Asimov and saying, okay, now I can imagine these vast possibilities of what's available in universe. Um, and then going and say, playing a role-playing game where you begin to recognize that identity, the identity that you're handed as a human being in the world, is no more real than the identity that you just adopted in your role-playing game. You know, I, I am as much Jordan Hall as I am. Hagar, the, the dwarf, right? And it's just, okay, well, how much time do I spend there? And how, how do other people relate to me? It's, it's, a, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it, there's a lot of similarity and it creates a consciousness space. It creates a, a fluidity of being able to not be addicted to a particular paradigm, to a particular identity, or being addicted to not being addicted to them, right? To be sort of flitting about, but actually a, a fluidity in liminal space that allows you to be receptive to the possibilities in a, in a kind of openness. And then what ended up happening was, I guess, for my, in my particular case, two characteristics. One was, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that my dad was a military man, I built a substantial skillfulness in strategy. How I showed up as being able to be in a relationship with my dad was to be really good at strategy, like strategy games, for example. And the second was, it turns out that nerd culture was on the ascendance. So having a deep familiarity with and uh, artfulness in, say, computers was really useful in 1994. <laughs> so I combined those two. I combined a, uh, a high capacity and strategy with a high uh, awareness and broad spectrum skillfulness in all the various aspects of nerd culture to begin getting into being a technology entrepreneur, but never, ever from the point of view of being a businessman. I have no interest whatsoever in that entire category. The whole point has always been the thing that I'm talking about right now, which I've always been connected to as far as I can tell, which is actually at a childhood level is literally just being able to enter into a space of collaboration, otherwise known as playing with good friends. So, so then what ended up happening, I don't know if you, you paid attention to the bio, but I was quite successful. I actually achieved a certain meaningful level of success. I took a company that I had specifically founded public on the NASDAQ. And then what ended up happening was that I was handed the wonderful opportunity of feeling all of the various traumas that I had not resolved sort of collapse on top of me all at once. Jordan, this has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation. Uh, one of the things that I just want to close with is just, first off, I thank you again for all the work you've done around Qualia and thank you for this awesome conversation. Just a couple of books that you'd recommend in terms of people reading on, I guess, let's do complex system science in order to get started. 
where would you where would you start? Uh, I would read a book called A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History and War in the Age of Intelligent Machines, both by Manuel Delanda. Top tool you use to get yourself into a uh, state of peak performance? Actually, I may not know the answer to this question. The top tool is breathing. So are we talking diaphragmatic breathing or something else? No, no, a whole like 19 different breathing techniques depending on the situation. So breathing as an entire portfolio. Like becoming mindful of breathing turned out to be huge. I mean, what, kids should be taught that almost from birth. Uh, the second was um, all the, simple, the different variations on meditation and mindfulness. And then the third actually was qualia. Jordan, thank you again. This has been awesome. My mind is, uh, mind is blown in so many good ways. So I'm going to take this all away, and I've got a lot to digest here. But thank you again for being on the show, and uh, I would love to have you back on sometime soon. But I appreciate it. Yeah, it sounds like we were actually just getting ready to have more conversations. So uh, this is where we're <laughs> exactly we could go down a lot of other uh, places. But thanks again. Right on. Thanks. Bye bye. All right, superhumans. What did you think of that episode? Is it something you enjoyed? Is it something you'd like to have a follow up episode? I know I have a lot of questions that come out of that episode, and I could have conversations with Jordan for hours. But really, I want to hear your feedback. So if you can send an email to podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com, I read them all. It would be greatly beneficial for me to really just hear what you have to say. What can be better? How could we grow this thing? Speaking of growing, if you wouldn't mind going over to iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever podcast listening device or application you use, and giving Decoding Superhuman a five-star rating, it really helps getting the word out. And I appreciate it very much. Again, I look forward to hearing from you. So just send an email to podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com and have a great day, superhumans. <laughs>